Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't you stand? We'll begin in prayer. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. I am Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo. Our speaker this evening is a deacon of the Richmond Diocese he was ordained in 1996 and serves at St. Stephen the Martyr Catholic Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. He graduated from the Franciscan University of Steubenville and earned his doctorate in jurisprudence at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a member of the Virginia State Bar and has practiced law for 32 years, making several appearances before the United States Supreme Court on pro-life, pro-family, and religious freedom constitutional cases. He has also earned a master's degree in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute and is currently completing a PhD in moral theology at Catholic University of America. He has appeared on several television series for EWTN. He is the author of eight books and is currently the editor-in-chief of Catholic Online. He and his wife of 36 years have five children and six grandchildren. Please join me in welcoming Deacon Keith Fournier. In his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, a wonderful work exposing the unseen spiritual warfare taking place around us through a series of letters between demons, the older Screwtape and the younger student Wormwood, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In a sense, my friends, the same can be said of politics. Like many of you, I'm still in recovery after the last electoral cycle, trying to make sense out of what is happening to this nation which we love. The temptation so clearly present in our circles is to fall into two separate approaches, both of which can lead to error. One is to completely retreat from that area of culture and social responsibility referred to as politics. And there's a lot of people tempted to do that, very good people. The other is to pursue the path of the modern zealot or utopian and believe that politics alone 
can actually affect enduring change in the hearts of people and thus in the broader culture. So to paraphrase Lewis, the devils, which are so clearly active in political climates these days, hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In 1947, Lewis addressed the decline of his beloved Britain, Britain in a book that was called The Abolition of Man. He warned of relativism and the trends in the British educational system. He reasserted the timeless moral truths of Christianity as the only solution to stop the decline. He called for a return to the Christian vision of the human person and the cultivation of virtue as the path to true human flourishing and freedom. And he defined what he called the chest in his work as, and I quote, the higher emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments or character. He wrote that without this chest, men and women devolve into self-idolatry, they lose their human dignity, and they lose their freedom. They become slaves to disordered appetites, and their cultures soon follow. Sound familiar? The West is in a moral mess, just as Lewis warned. And with its decline, we are facing the eclipse of true and authentic human freedom. Lewis's words in that book are very timely, and I want to quote them for you. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest, and then we expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor, and then we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate, and then we bid the geldings to be fruitful. We are living under what Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, rightly called a dictatorship of relativism in the West. Relativism is a philosophy, as we know, that says there's no such thing as truth. Your truth is the same as your truth, is the same as your truth, is the same. In other words, there's no truth. And so the culture stumbles, drunken on a false notion of freedom. So evident when we speak of people having a, quote, right to kill the innocent. A culture that has divorced itself from any norms to guide the exercise of human choice or to govern our behavior. Because when there is nothing objectively true, which can be known by all men and women, which can form the basis of a common life, then there can be no basis for real freedom. And so we teeter on the brink of anarchy. And it's evident. But in the midst of all of this, we must not, we cannot retreat from our vital role in the political, economic, or social order. Perhaps one of the greatest explanations of the role of the Christian in the world is expressed in an ancient letter entitled A Letter to Diogenetus. It'll be handed out to you next week. That's to get you interested in the talk. The letter is a second century apology written to Diogenetus, a pagan inquirer, who wanted to understand what 
Christians did in the world and how they viewed the world and how they viewed their role. And the phrase in that letter that is so profound, the Christian, an anonymous Christian, though some think they know his name, wrote that as the soul is to the body, so are Christians to the world. We can't leave the world. We animate it. We give it life. We give it energy. And we are called into the midst of it to transform it from within. We are the soul of the world. God still loves the world so much that he sends his son. And that work of his son continues through his body, the church, of which you and I are members. The church is the new world being recreated in Jesus Christ. And we cannot abandon that work. We are called to be that leaven and that light, that salt of which the master speaks. And so we belong in the loaf of human culture. And included in that culture is politics. Two years before he became pope, Carol Cardinal Watia spoke to the U.S. bishops. His comments were published in the Wall Street Journal on November 9th, 1978. And I quote, We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think that wide circles of the American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel and the anti-gospel. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. It is a trial which the whole church must now take up. And take it up we have. However, there's a lot more work to be done. The ground has shifted, and our struggle is intensifying. But our cultural mission lies at the heart of what it really means to be leaven and light and salt, to be the soul of the world. This is no time to retreat from the culture. This is the time to all the more take our place within it and continue the redemptive mission. What is needed in this hour are courageous Christian men and women who are morally coherent, who live a unity of life, who do not separate their faith from their participation in every aspect of human culture. And that includes political participation. But let's be clear. The struggle that we face in increasingly hostile Western culture involves a clash of worldviews, personal and corporate. It involves competing definitions of human freedom and human dignity and human flourishing. And we need to see this struggle in light of our own Christian history and our own vocation. This is not the first time we have faced this kind of struggle. We were born for this kind of struggle. In fact, the early church cut its teeth on this kind of struggle, and so must we. I do not care how modern the issues of this age purport to be. They're not all that new. And humans do not change all that much, at least without grace. We need to contend with to engage the dictatorship of relativism which claims that there are no truths and insist that there is truth and that it can be known and that it must govern our lives. This means we will face persecution. 
it's already underway. Our path is already paved with the insults, the accusations, and the calumny of our fellow citizens. It will probably get worse. We're accused of being against progress and anti-science for defending the dignity of every human life, including the lives of our first neighbors in the womb. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're in favor of authentic progress. We're pro-life because it's right. Science exists to serve the person, the family, and the common good. And in an age deluded by the architects of a cultural order of death, we will not compromise on the truth. We cannot. This means we've got a struggle ahead. The dignity of every human life from conception through natural death is true and it will not change. Science simply confirms what our conscience confirmed a long time ago. Those little boys and girls in the first home of the whole human race, their mother's womb, are our neighbors. And it is always wrong to intentionally kill our innocent neighbors. To say and to do otherwise is barbaric. We insist that true marriage and family have been inscribed by the divine architect into the order of the universe. That's because they have. Truth does not change. People and cultures do. Sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. Marriage is what it is and it will not change. Marriage is the first society into which children are born. It's where they learn to be fully human and grow in virtue and flourish and take their role in the broader society and in families, communities. And we must not be afraid to make the claim that children have a right to a stable family with a mother and a father. They do. Of course we care about the single parent family and the many broken homes. However, their existence and even their increase does not change the norm necessary to build a stable and a healthy society. Intact marriages and families are the glue of a healthy and a happy social order. We need to stand firm on that. We need to be a palpable, visible, committed, dedicated reflection of the truth about marriage and family. But let's face it, to live a faithful marriage has now become countercultural. Our convictions and claims concerning life and marriage are not outdated notions of a past era. They pave the path to a future of true freedom. We also insist upon the existence of a natural moral law, which can be known by all men and women through the exercise of reason. And this is not only a Christian position. It's the ground upon which every great civilization has been built. It's the source of every great and authentic human and civil rights movement. This natural law gives us the moral norms we need to build societies, to govern ourselves, to be truly civilized. And it must inform our positive law, our civil and criminal law, or we become lawless, devolve into anarchy. And we are seeing that all around us. Now let's take a few minutes and look at our history. There can be a tendency to think, these are the worst times. It's never been like this. That's wrong. 
It has been. This is simply a new missionary age. This is what we do as the church. The early church was sent into cultures filled with people who thought they were advanced in light of the arts and sciences of their day. Yet those cultures practiced primitive forms of abortion and even exposure, which was a practice of leaving unwanted children on rocks to be eaten by birds of prey or picked up by slave traders. Ancient Christian manuscripts, which you've heard of in this wonderful institute, such as the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve, other early Christian sources, tell us that the early Christians were called to live in those kinds of cultures, and it wasn't easy. But they persevered, and holding on to truth, they transformed them from within. These were cultures of use, where people were treated as property, cultures of excess, where freedom was perceived as a power over others, and where license masqueraded as liberty. And they changed those cultures from within. Many of the gods and the goddesses of those old pagan regimes promoted lives of selfish excess, engaged in homosexual practice and hedonism, masquerading as freedom. And the myths that they told had the pagan gods acting in much the same way. Our Western culture is sliding now through secularism into paganism, a new form of paganism. All the myths and the tributes and the statues are different, but the reality is no different. And contemporary paganism, like the paganism of old, will never bring true and authentic human freedom and flourishing. It leaves in its wake misery and a loss of freedom and slavery. And that's why we cannot retreat from the culture, because we love men and women, because God still loves them and wants to set them free. Now, the early Christians didn't rail against the pagans of their age when they sought to effect the conversion of those cultures. They just lived differently. And they proclaimed the fullness of freedom found in Jesus Christ to all who would listen to them. They didn't change their message to the culture. They changed the culture through their message and through their witness. They demonstrated its truth with a compelling witness of life. They lived in monogamous marriages. They raised their children to be faithful and good. And they went into the world of their age and offered it a new way. This way, and by the way, that's what the early church was called before they were called Christians in Antioch, the way. This way revealed a very different worldview than the one that the pagans embraced. With joy and perseverance and integrity, the early Christians lived this way in the midst of the pagan cultures. And as a result, they stirred up hostility. Some of them were martyred in the red martyrdom of shed blood. But countless more joined the train of what used to be called white martyrdom, living lives of sacrificial witness and service, working hard, staying faithful to the end of a long life spent in missionary toil. But something amazing happened. Slowly, not only were small numbers of pagans converted and baptized, but eventually their leaders and entire nations followed suit. And the Christian worldview emerged and changed the social order. The clash of freedoms continued, but the climate for the church changed. 
the Christian faith and the practices and the lifestyle of those Christians began to win the hearts of men and women. Cultures once enshrined to pagan practices, such as plural marriage, homosexuality, exposure, abortion, began to change dramatically. It was Christianity that taught such novel concepts as the dignity of every person and their equality before the one God. It was Christianity that proclaimed the dignity of women, the dignity of chaste marriage, the sanctity of the family. It was Christianity that introduced the understanding of freedom, not simply as a freedom from, but a freedom for responsible living and integrity and an obligation to one another. Christians insisted that that freedom must be exercised with reference to a higher law, a moral code, a law higher than the emperor or the shifting sand of public opinion. It was Christians who understood and proclaimed and demonstrated that choice when rightly exercised means choosing what is right and what is good and what is true showing a concern for the other. They knew that freedom has a moral constitution and their faith presented a coherent and a compelling answer to the existential questions that plagued the ancient pagans. The same questions that plagued the contemporary pagans. Questions such as why we exist, how we got here, what's the purpose of life, how did evil come into the world, how come we can't make right choices? Why do we harm and injure one another? What force seems to move us toward doing evil? Can we be set free from its power? Christians had the answer in a compelling worldview. Christian philosophy began to flourish. Philosophies of government and economic theory began to be influenced by principles that were derived from a Christian anthropology which means an understanding of the human person created in the image of God and recreated in Jesus Christ, who is the new man. The Christian worldview began to take root. And we see it as cultures flourished. It was Christians who produced the beautiful art which humanized those cultures. Because Christians understood that creation and redemption are a part of the grand masterpiece by a divine artist and that there's a connection between true beauty and knowing God who reveals himself fully and completely in Jesus. Christians were and are the true humanist. That's because to be Christian is to be fully human. We need to learn, my friends, from the example of our history from the witness of those who engaged the struggle that we now face, because it's the same one at the beginning of the third millennium. We must remember that in the first instance, and even though we're talking about politics tonight, the struggle is profoundly a spiritual one, and our victories will only be won in prayer. But they then must be stepped out into a new Christianary movement from the heart of the church for the sake of the world. Let me say that again. From the heart of the church for the sake of the world. If we live that way, if we persevere, if we hold on, 
And if we demonstrate the kind of moral coherence and courage of our forebears in Christ, we will see change. Our witness and the power behind it, the risen Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, will affect conversion of persons and families and cultures. We are called into the culture. In 1999, the Pontifical Council for the Culture from the Vatican released an insightful document which I recommend called Toward a Pastoral Approach to Culture. It contains some very helpful insights. And here's a quote. From the time the gospel was first preached, the church has known the process of encounter and engagement with culture. For it is one of the properties of the human person that he can achieve true and full humanity only by means of culture. We cannot retreat from the culture. We're called to work for its conversion, by working for the conversion of hearts, by working for the transformation of structures which promote the true common good. That's the context of politics. Politics is a part of the call and vocation to culture. The Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a directive in 2002 entitled, A Doctrinal Note on Some Questions Regarding the Participation of Catholics in Political Life. It called upon Catholics to be morally coherent in the exercise of their citizenship. Thus the name of this first talk. Sadly, the trends in our last election cycle reveal continuing incoherence. Among elected Catholic officials, yes, but also among Catholic citizens. That teaching document was addressed directly to the bishops of the Catholic Church, and I'm quoting, and in a particular way to Catholic politicians and all lay members of the faithful called to participate in the political life of democratic societies. That means all of us. It offered direction on what it means to act in a manner that is morally coherent in our political and social participation. And I want to read a little bit from it. I'll make these quotes available perhaps by next week. And I quote, By its intervention in this area, the church's magisterium does not wish to exercise political power or eliminate the freedom of opinion of Catholics regarding contingent questions. Instead, it intends, as its proper function, to instruct and illuminate the conscience of the faithful, particularly those involved in political life. So their actions may always serve the integral promotion of the human person and the common good. The social doctrine of the church is not an intrusion into the government of individual countries. It's a question of the lay Catholic's duty to be morally coherent, found within one's conscience, which is one and indivisible. And here, they quote the council. There cannot be two parallel lives in their existence. On the one hand, the so-called secular life, that is, life in a family, at work, and social responsibility, and the responsibility of public life and in culture. The branch engrafted to the vine, which is Christ, bears its fruit in every sphere of existence and activity. In fact, Every area of the lay faithful's lives, as different as they are, enters into the plan of God. That means politics. 
the God who desires that these very areas be the places in time where the love of Christ is revealed and realized for both the glory of the Father and service of others. Every activity, every situation, every precise responsibility, as for example, skill and solidarity in work, love and dedication in the family, the education of children, service to society and public life, and the promotion of truth in the area of culture are the occasions ordained by providence for a continuous exercise of faith, hope, and charity. Living and acting in conformity with one's own conscience on questions of politics is not slavish acceptance of positions alien to politics or even some kind of confessionalism, but rather the way in which Christians offer their concrete contribution so that through political life, society will become more just and more consistent with the dignity of the human person. It's very clear. So what's happening? We need examples and practical direction and prophetic witness for Catholics on how to enter into political participation in a morally coherent fashion. We've been given instruction in the teaching magisterium. Wonderful instruction. Sadly, it's not read. Or if it is read, it's not lived. We've been given ongoing example and instruction from our bishops. And let me stop here for a moment. We have some wonderfully courageous bishops. And we have seen that in particular in the last year with the struggle we have faced in the first freedom of religious freedom and the courage that has been demonstrated by them. And we're witnessing a growing response from those primarily tasked with effective political participation, and that is the lay faithful. We're seeing new associations and movements and expressions of what could best be called a new Catholic action. However, we need much more. And we really need a renewal of the mind on what it really means to be morally coherent in our political participation. For example, there's a primary resource which too many Catholics are not even aware exists. It's called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. It was issued by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace in 2004. Here's a copy of it. It's also online. I think having a physical copy of it is a very helpful thing. This is an incredibly important book for every Catholic who's serious about political participation. It's well written, beautifully footnoted, topically indexed, accessible. Now prior to 2004, the phrase social teaching of the church referred to the teachings found in sacred scripture expounded upon in the Christian tradition, developed in the documents of the Council, explained within a contemporary series of encyclical letters, apostolic letters and exhortations, summarized in the Catholic Church. But there's a problem. Many people hadn't read many of those sources for a number of reasons. Thus, what sometimes claimed to be the social teaching of the Catholic Church was really closer to being the spin of self-styled experts, some of whom had their own political and or economic theories and agendas. Then this book was published. It was exactly what had been lacking. 
and it contains a very readable summary of centuries of teaching. And it sets forth the themes that we find in the social teaching. Every Catholic should have a copy of the compendium. And not only that, but every Catholic should study it out of prayer, looking to have our minds renewed and to learn how to think with the mind of the church. But sadly, after eight years, the situation has not changed all that much. I find that very few Catholics even know that compendium exists. Or they're afraid of using the term social teaching. I'll give you a quick example, and I don't want to get down on bunny trails because I have a lot of content I want to cover tonight. Just a few years ago, I was at a Catholic leaders conference. I love that conference. It's a wonderful treat. I was asked to be a sort of a co-speaker with someone who will go unnamed. And from the ambo, from the podium actually, it wasn't in a church, it wasn't an ambo, uh, I talked about the social teaching of the church, and I used the phrase social justice. Literally, a fellow from the back of the room began charging the platform. That's a Marxist term! Don't use it! Well, I kept using it. It may have been co-opted, but it's not a Marxist term. It's a profoundly Catholic and Christian term. And if it's been co-opted, it needs to be reclaimed and properly understood. The problem is, a lot of Catholics don't even know what this social teaching is. It's not unlike in the Acts of the Apostles. I was sharing this with somebody before the session began this evening. Remember in the Acts of the Apostles when they ran across some of the disciples of John and asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized? And they said, we did not even know there was a Holy Spirit. There's a lot of Catholics who don't even know there really is this beautiful body of teaching that's meant to help us inform our participation. Fewer see any connection between the faith they profess and their action as citizens. The social teaching of the Catholic Church is incredibly important in this hour. In fact, I think it's the antidote that we need as Western culture continues on its path of self-destruction. It's not only for Catholics, or for other Christians, or for just religious people. It's for all people and for all nations, and it's offered by the Church to those who seek to build a genuinely human and truly just society. Those who want to promote the real common good and not a counterfeit. It's called social because it speaks to human society and to the formation and the role and the rightful place of social institutions. And it offers truths and principles that can be known by all men and women because they're revealed in the natural law. Yes, they're expounded upon in Revelation and taught but they can be known by all men and women because they're revealed in the natural law. The social teaching is not left or right or liberal or conservative within the contemporary politicized use of those terms. The church walks the way of the person and is an expert in humanity because she continues the work of the Lord himself. And it is him who shows us the fullness of what it means to be a human person. The social teaching is a division of moral theology. And I quote from now the compendium at least one line, and I'll make these quotes available. The church's social doctrine belongs to the field not of ideology, but of theology, and particularly of moral theology. This teaching is to be found at the crossroads where Christian life and conscience come in contact with the real world. Contrary to 
the relativism of our age. Catholic social teaching insists that there are unchangeable truths which can be known by all men and women through the exercise of reason. They're revealed in the natural law, which the catechism tells us is present in the heart of each man and established by reason. That natural law, and again the catechism says, is universal in its precepts, and its authority extends to all men. It expresses the dignity of the person and determines the basis for his fundamental rights and duties. It's here in this natural law that we find the moral truth so desperately needed to recover Western culture. It's here where we're going to be able to rebuild the infrastructure of collapsing Western civilization. The compendium tells us this law is called natural because the reason that promulgates it is property human nature. It's universal. It extends to all people. Its principal precepts, the divine and natural law, was presented in the Decalogue, and it indicates the essential norms that will regulate moral life. How often do you hear people talking about the natural law? Or if they do, how many of them really understand what it means? Yet it is the key to dealing with the dictatorship of relativism. The dignity of every human person at every age and stage, the nature of marriage, our obligations and solidarity, all of these truths that the church teaches are meant for all men and women. They're not just religious positions. They're human positions. And they can be known by all men and women through the exercise of reason. They're supposed to provide a framework for building society. We begin with the human person and recognizing the human dignity which is present in every person at every age and stage. And it is this foundational vision which has been lost in our contemporary age. It informs our position as Catholics concerning the respect for every human life, whether that life be in the first home of the womb, a wheelchair, a jail cell, a hospital room, a hospice, a senior center, or a soup kitchen. The social teaching doesn't propose any particular economic theory, but it does insist that every economic order must first be at the service of the dignity of the human person and the family, and further the common good. Another example of the natural law position taught by the Catholic Church is the truth about marriage, as between one man and one woman, open to life and intended for life and the family and the society founded upon it. Marriage is not just a social construct, which can be redefined by courts or by legislation. It's the foundation of the family, which is the foundation of society. The family is the first society, first church, first school, first economy, first government, first mediating institution. The human person by nature and by grace is made for community. And the first community that civilizes us, humanizes us, and makes us able to live together in peace with one another is the family. All of these truths have been given to us in this wonderful legacy the church offers us. And they give us, my friends, as Catholic men and women called into the culture, and in particular into the political arena, the materials that the world needs to hear proclaimed 
and we are to inform our political participation first, last, and always through them. The church challenges any notion of human freedom which begins and ends with the isolated individual person because we're called into relationship. And it's only in communion that we find freedom. And that freedom must be exercised within a moral constitution with reference to what is good and what is true. The church calls us, yes, to a preferential option. I prefer a preferential love for the poor because Jesus showed that kind of preferential love for the poor. We see it in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be judged upon whether we recognized him in the poor. So we have to show a concern for them. However, all of that needs to be worked out prudentially within the structures of human society. Solidarity is an obligation we have but it needs to be applied through subsidiarity. And even those principles need to be understood. In recent encyclicals and magisterial teaching, the market economy has been recognized as having a potential for promoting all of these goods when it's properly understood and morally structured. However, the Catholic Church doesn't take a position on an economic theory. She properly and prophetically stood against the materialism of the atheistic Marxist system and she also properly and prophetically cautions nations which have adopted a form of liberal capitalism that there are dangers in any form of economism or materialism which promotes the use of persons as products which fails to recognize the value of being over acquiring. She reminds our consumerist Western culture that the market economy must be at the service of the person. She warns of what can happen when it's not. And we have only to look at the modern encyclicals of Blessed John Paul II and, yes, Pope Benedict XVI to see wonderful insights on this. In Charity and Truth, Benedict wrote, the economic sphere is neither ethically neutral nor inherently inhuman and opposed to society. It's part and parcel of human activity. And precisely because it's human, it must be structured and governed in an ethical manner. Just recently on New Year's, Benedict released a wonderful letter for the World Day of Peace. You may have seen some of the news reports because in a 4,000 word letter, he made a comment. He made reference to a selfish and individualistic mindset which can find its expression in an unregulated financial capitalism. The media was all over it. Benedict XVI is against capitalism. Absolutely absurd. Sadly, a lot of Catholics picked up on it. If you read the letter, it is a beautiful exposition of Catholic social thought. Markets, however, can only be free when free people are engaged in them. Freedom is a good of the person. And a free economy should seek to continually expand itself by opening the way for participation. That's a Catholic principle. This is why John Paul, and I, won't, I don't have the time to quote him, but is wonderful on the 100th anniversary of Rerum de Verum, Centesimus Annus. He warned of what can happen when we lose sight of the centrality of the human person and the family. And he recommended, and so does Benedict, that we use terms more like free economy and free market to emphasize 
the primacy of the person. In fact, and this is John Paul, if by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative. The question was whether or not capitalism is the victorious social system. It would perhaps be more appropriate, he continues, to speak of a business economy, a market economy, or simply a free economy. And the Pope continued, but if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed within a strong juridical framework, which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality, and sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is certainly negative. What's he saying? He's saying that the economic order itself must defer to the dignity of the human person and to the primacy of family. Catholic social thought is rich and beautiful, and it really does give us the material so desperately needed right now. And so many of our Christian friends do not have it. We have it, and we don't even know it. I work a lot in the political arena. I just took on a campaign. I'm not withdrawing. But one of the things I've discovered in working with other Christians, particularly our evangelical friends, is they don't have this teaching on the natural law. It's awfully difficult to stand up in a paganized society and try to quote the Bible as the source of authority when it's not accepted. However, to make a natural law argument not only can be done, but it persuades. Catholics can do that. Are we doing it? Do we know how to do it? Catholic social thought needs to be rescued. It needs to be rescued from those who seek to use it as a proof text to legitimize a political theory or economic system that fails to spring from its view of the human person. Our task as Catholic citizens is not to put proof texts from Catholic social teaching around political or social or economic theories that are rooted in a limited notion of the person, marriage, the family, solidarity, or a proper application of subsidiarity. We need to start with Catholic social teaching and then inform our political theory and our thought and our action. Starting with a pet political or economic or social theory and trying to build a Catholic proof text around it betrays our prophetic call. It also does a serious injustice to the beauty of Catholic social thought as a whole. We need to be morally coherent and inform our participation first by the teaching of the church. Now what we end up being labeled as politically doesn't matter. Conservative, liberal, neoliberal, neoconservative, all of it. The noun is Catholic. Now, as I wind this up, let me give an example of some morally incoherent models. I know, they're all around, we've seen it, particularly in the last election cycle. But I grew up in Dorchester, Massachusetts, in an inner city neighborhood in the greater Boston area. And some of you with blonde hair like me remember John F. Kennedy. My family had a picture of the Pope and John F. Kennedy on the wall as you walked in the front door. And I vividly remember the faithful day when President Kennedy was assassinated. I was traumatized. And I kept a scrapbook 
where I put newspaper articles and photos concerning it. And my mother kept it for me. She also gave me a card made up marking the day of his funeral with a prayer for the repose of his soul. She wrapped it in saran wrap. I still have it. There certainly was, and to some degree still is, a Kennedy mystique. Well, two years ago, September 12, 2010, marked the 50th anniversary of the address given by then-Senator John Kennedy to the Houston Ministerial Alliance. And in that speech, he laid out an approach to the role of religious faith which resulted in privatizing the truths informed by faith. He failed to acknowledge the existence of a natural law which can be known by all men and women through reason, which is meant to govern our life together in society. And he committed what can best be called the Kennedy mistake. And he gave cover to countless Catholic politicians to be morally incoherent in their political participation. So ironically, the nation's first Catholic president made a serious error and we are still reaping the bad fruit of it. We have to be cautious in separating moral and social and economic issues in the body politic. We cannot separate the spirit, soul, and body of a person. And human society is a form of corporate person. All of our political and economic concerns have a moral dimension because they concern the human person. Why do we care about expanding economic opportunity? Because we respect the dignity of every human person. Why do we care about the poor? Because they're human persons and they have human dignity. And even when we get into such prudential areas as how big government should be, when we advocate for smaller government, we who are Catholic thinkers must not sound as though we're anti-government. Government can be good. God governs. The family is the first government. What we're looking for is subsidiarity out of respect for the primacy of the family as the first society, the first government. We also need to be really clear when we use language in politics. Let me give you a couple of pet peeves, as my mother said. There's no such thing as an abortion right, period. Even if the positive law currently protects the act of choosing to abort a child, which it does, with the police power of the state. But here's my point. Abortions have no rights. Only human persons do. Rights are goods of persons. They're not ethereal things floating around somewhere. Every procured abortion is the taking of an innocent human life and the denial of the true right written in the natural law, the fundamental and inalienable right to life. And our position on life is not about a single issue. It's a lens through which we view every issue. Our pro-life position is also a solidarity position. The embryonic human person, and by the way, that's a phrase used by the church. It's a beautiful letter on the dignity of the human person a few years ago. The disabled, the needy, the elderly, they're all members of the human family. And they're our neighbors. And we shouldn't kill our neighbors. By the way, I think one of the greatest arguments, I use it all the time, and if it helps you, use it as well, is to refer to the child in the womb as our neighbor. Science confirms what we know. Look, we're, we're passing around 4D ultrasound images, baby's first picture. 
That's our neighbor. Doctors operate in utero. We all know it. And when we begin to humanize the child in the womb and speak of the child as our neighbor, and then say it's always and everywhere wrong to kill our neighbor, we can turn the tide of the argument. But remember, as John Paul said, abortion is only the cutting edge of the culture of death. Anytime human persons are treated as products to be used or manipulated or enslaved or traded or made a means rather than an end, we find the culture of death. And we will be judged the most severely as Catholics if we fail to act in a morally coherent manner and confront that culture of death. And that includes in how we vote. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more Luke 12:48 haunts me. To those to whom much is given, much more will be required. And if the fullness of truth subsists, as the Council said in the Catholic Church, and it does, how much more of an obligation do we who are Catholic Christians have to standing in it and offering it to others? As I conclude, I want to briefly touch on one aspect of political participation. Now, I speak personally. Let me make that clear on the video. I speak personally. I believe that on the predominant human rights issue of our age, the current controlling national leadership of the Democratic Party has lost its way. I, like many Catholic Americans, grew up equating being Catholic with being a Democrat because I thought Democrats cared more about the poor, the working class, the marginalized, and those with no voice. And I know there are many people who say that was never true. That's not my point. My point is that the failure to hear the cry of the child in the womb while mouthing the language of caring for the poor is unbridled hypocrisy. Medical science has confirmed what our conscience has always known. The child in the womb is one of us. His or her voice cannot be heard because it's muffled in the once hallowed home of the womb. And it's disregarded by political opportunists. Now, there may be a few pro-life Democrats, and I look forward to working with them when I find them. <laughs> However, after the experience of the health care debate, even this former Democrat is beginning to have my doubts. The elite who currently control that party, which abandoned its one-time support for all the poor, including the children of the womb, is now also abandoning true marriage and the family and society founded upon it. Now look, this is not to say that I'm a great fan of the leaders of the alternate major political party in the United States either. However, and I speak personally, at least for now, I've chosen to work within that party because its platform is more consistent with my efforts to inform my political participation by the social teaching of my church. Yes, I've considered non-alignment, but my practical involvement with politics makes that problematic. My greatest concern right now with that other major party are the voices which are growing louder by the day that seem ready to abandon the truth about marriage and with it the truth about the family and society founded upon it. In 2003, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of the Catholic Church put out considerations regarding proposals to give legal recognition to unions between homosexual persons. A brilliant document. And in it, we read these words. The Church's teaching on marriage and on the complementarity of the sexes reiterates a truth that is evident to right reason and recognized as such by all the major cultures of the world.
Marriage is not just any relationship between human beings. It was established by the Creator with its own nature, essential properties, and purpose. No ideology can erase from the human spirit the certainty that marriage exists solely between a man and a woman, who by mutual personal gift, proper and exclusive to themselves, tend toward the communion of their persons. In this way, they mutually perfect each other in order to cooperate with God in procreation and the upbringing of new human lives. That's the church speaking. Folks, there's a cultural revolution underway in the West. There's two conflicting visions of the human person, human flourishing, marriage, and the family and society founded upon it. It's real, and we've been thrust into the midst of it. But we cannot support efforts to give promiscuous heterosexual or homosexual relationships the same status as monogamous marriage. Civil institutions do not create marriage nor can they create a right to marry for those who are incapable of it. Governments have long regulated marriage for the common good. For example, the ban on polygamy and age requirements. They've been enforced in order to ensure there's a mature decision at the basis of the marriage contract. Heterosexual marriage, procreation, and the nurturing of children form the family, and the family forms the society. We need to be clear. To limit marriage to heterosexual couples, is not discriminatory now, nor has it ever been. Homosexual couples cannot bring into existence what marriage intends by its very definition. And to attempt to confer the same benefits and status that have been conferred in the past only to marriage to homosexual paramours is bad public policy. That's not to be anti-gay. It's to defend marriage. Now let me conclude. Catholics are not just one more interest group, which can be polled and pandered to and bought. Our social obligation is clear in the teaching of the church. It's to promote the true common good, to defend the existence of truth in the midst of a dictatorship of relativism, to defend the teaching of the church, no matter where that ends us in terms of political labels. Our political participation must be uncompromising, in its commitment to the dignity of every human life, to marriage and the family, to authentic human freedom, and to solidarity. We are our brother and sister's keeper. But that must be applied through subsidiarity. We need to be morally coherent Catholics. The question is, will we rise to the challenge? And will we do so effectively? Will we learn to live a unity of life? That's the question we'll consider next week. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much, Deacon Keith. It's good to know that we have men like this standing before our Supreme Court. Thank you for your service to the church and to our country. Sadly, in many of our churches, it's very uncommon to see standing room only but not so uncommon at the Institute of Catholic Culture. And so we are going to continue to bring the faith to those that want to learn it and to be able to make books available like the Compendium on the Social Doctrine of the Church so that Catholics can be, as the deacon said, can be informed about our faith. Why? So that we can think rightly 
and that we can follow our Lord's final command to us to go out and teach all nations. It is our obligation, but also our greatest gift in life, that we have been given this jewel in order to give it to others, to do with that jewel of truth only what God can do, and that is save our brothers and sisters and bring them back to the kingdom of God. I thank you all for coming tonight. We're going to take a short break. I'll kick it off. I had someone come up to me during the break and say, there's no easy solution to this. And to that I say, absolutely. We got a long haul ahead of us. My goal tonight was not to get specific, to lay the sort of general framework of what is ahead and what our task is and to put it in a historic framework. And I said to this particular individual, I think the most important thing we can help to do right now is to choose the right candidates for political office. And if they don't exist, you should run. Because there's just been too much compromise. And we need people who are articulate, people who are able to share these kinds of truths and principles offered by the church. You know, somebody else came up in the middle of the break and said, you know, I never thought about it, but you know, it's awful hard in a pagan society to just quote the Bible. That's right. And a number of our evangelical friends, wonderful folks, but they're not being listened to because the reference point they use as the basis for their position is the Bible. So who has a natural law theory? Catholics. We need to understand it and begin to articulate it on the issues where it's applicable, life and marriage, and family. We also need to be careful that we understand there are a lot of prudential areas where we just offer principles. But this is a long haul. There's a lot of work ahead. And I think the point I wanted to make tonight is, one, this is not new, 2,000 years we've been sent into cultures. Two, what we have to offer is the unique contribution that the church brings as articulated through mostly the laymen and women who go into the political arena. And three, we're in a collapsed situation and rebuilding takes a long time. Okay, I know you got a lot of questions. Uh, yes, uh, the Democratic Party basically had a pro-abortion platform in the convention. The Republican basically had a pro-life one. But there is a problem in that Republicans will compromise. You've heard of Karl Rowe, for example. Oh, uh, and, and so whenever there are more exceptions made to abortion, so they just make enough exceptions so, so the candidate is more pro-life than Barack Obama. So um, my question is, is there any sort of way we should confuse the numbers people in order to make sure that we can get good candidates who are complete pro-lifers into office? Yeah. First of all, I'm, I am not naive. Let me tell you something. I am anything but naive. And I did say I was speaking personally, that I've chosen to stay working with that other major political party because I want to get some things done. I am a reluctant Republican and I don't have a lot of confidence in the current leadership of that party either. What do I think we can do? We can choose good people who are going to stay completely and unqualifiedly pro-life, who are going to defend marriage and the family, who are going to stand up for those issues that matter the most. And if they don't exist, don't support them. Run yourself. What I wanted to do tonight was to give you a framework, because I'm speaking to Catholics, that I think we unfortunately don't know enough about. 
because I think what we've got is a lot of people in the political arena who are conservatives that are Catholic. I think what we need are Catholics. And if they end up being called conservative or anything else, because those labels change, that doesn't matter. And then we need to have a hierarchy of values and issues in the political arena. I wasn't able to touch upon those. I hope to in the next couple of weeks. But for example, life, it's not an issue. It's a hermeneutic, a framework, a lens through which we view everything. Without the dignity of human life, the game's over. What are we in the political arena for? Okay. So we need to have unqualifiedly pro-life candidates. Do we have them? I'm well aware we don't. Believe me, I've been disillusioned and discouraged. And you know, many people say you're crazy to even keep trying. What I tried to say tonight is I don't think we can pull back. I hope to see good people renew their minds with Catholic thought and run for office or work with those who are running for office. If you have an evangelical Christian running for office, Maybe some really good people. But I gave you an example. You can't just quote the Bible when the Bible is not accepted as a base of authority. So help them to understand the natural law. You know, it's very interesting. If you read a letter from a Birmingham jail, wonderful sermon by Martin Luther King. Notice what basis he defended his position on the equality of all men and women and the intrinsic evil of racism. The natural law. He quoted Paul. He quoted Thomas Aquinas. It's a beautiful letter. I think we need Catholics. We need Catholic advisors, and we need Catholic candidates. But most of all, we need Catholic men and women who can learn how to think politically by starting first with the mind of the church. Now, I'm going to use your question to, to say why I wrote that on the board. The deacon said you probably should explain some of these things, and I will hopefully next week or the week after. What is subsidiarity? Well, subsidiarity comes from the Latin word subsidium, which means help. And it's a principle of governance, of social ordering, that says that governing should start from the bottom up. Okay? That the first government is the family. And the family should not be usurped by a government over it. It should be helped, given assistance. That's the Catholic principle of governance. Notice how different that is, and I don't want to step on tolls, but I'm going to, than the voice of some, not all, but some so-called libertarians. Certain versions of libertarianism are antithetical to that kind of thought. Why? Because they start with a different anthropology. The Catholic thinker recognizes that we are by nature and grace called to relationship. And it is not the isolated individual that's the source of freedom. So it is marriage and the family and what we're really looking for, and I, I guess I'll be controversial, good governance. Can government be good? Yes. If it's closest to those being governed, and if it's good in the moral sense of the word, recognizing the higher values revealed in the natural law. So I'm well aware of all the stuff that has happened in the political arena, believe me. I've been out there contending for a long time, and I could easily be a cynic, except that I pray. And we cannot become cynics. We can be the candidates of the future, or you guys can be, I can't, except with special permission, which I'm not going to seek. But I'm looking for people who are willing to do it. And I'll tell you, I've walked into enough, I've, you know, I was doing this evangelical Catholic stuff before it was cool. 
The first book I ever wrote, way back when I had brown hair and more of it, was called Evangelical Catholics. It's out of print, except in Poland. And the foreword was written by Chuck Colson, God rest his soul. Okay. And one of the things that I think we need to do as Catholics now, that evangelical and Catholic collaboration is so acceptable, is to be fully Catholic. I was at a meeting a couple of years ago in Washington, D.C., around a table. with I, I was the only Catholic guy. Used to be like that decades ago. In this one, I was the only Catholic guy. And among the people there, Governor Mike Huckabee, a bunch of other people, and I began talking about natural law. And afterwards, I had all these people come up to me and say, where did you get that? <laughs> well, it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I said, the catechism. <laughs> Do we know that there's sections in the catechism on natural law? Have we read them? Do we understand it? Yes, I agree, we cannot accept compromise, and there has been much of it. I forgot to give one rule, and that was for you, that you have a maximum of three minutes on your answer. He's a taskmaster, isn't he? <laughs> uh, we have a, an email coming in from Vanessa in Florida, who asks, uh, who's watching online, as a lawyer, do you see Roe versus Wade being overturned or repealed in the future, in the near future, and if so, how could this happen? <laughs> I do. I think Roe and Doe, its companion case, is on a collision course. Uh, it's internally inconsistent. Uh, even the viability standard has obviously, obviously been exposed for the fraud that it is as we go more and more and more to realizing that the child in the womb, even in the earliest weeks, okay, even in the earliest weeks, we're going in and operating on the child in the womb. The history of Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade is on a collision course with itself. Do I think it will be overturned? I do. Do I think that's the end of the issue? No, it's just the beginning. Okay. Because what we really need is a culture of life. We can get rid of Roe and Doe, you know, but this idea of just returning it all to the states, and I'll be controversial again, no. Because you know what we'll have? Free states and slave states. Life states and death states. We need to, in fact, stand up for the truth that every single life from conception all the way through natural death to the end has dignity and must be protected. So I believe that recognizing the personhood of the child in the womb is key. How that gets done, and I'm not going to walk into this controversy, can be done in lots of different ways. So yes, I think Roe and Doe will in fact collide with truth, with science, and it'll be overturned. But I don't think that's the end. That's just the beginning. We have to build a culture of life. Well, this last election, I have to say a lot of Catholics stepped up to the plate and know, know what subsidiarity and distributism. We come and, a long uh, way. Yep. All of that, you know, and the bishops were very vocal. But I also noticed that the pro-choice uh, Catholic politicians, religious and Catholics, used the same lingo, words, definitions, to counter our stance. I'm not quite sure. The step in the right direction, we're getting more educated, but I don't well, see I, I, where it works. We don't have time tonight, but I'd love for you to think about specifics and then maybe bring them back next week okay. or the week after, okay? But I won't talk pro-choice. Some choices are always and everywhere wrong. It, they're anti-life. They're anti-life. And I think we need to be very, very clear in our language. I don't care. I mean, get used to being called extremist. The truth is the truth, and it won't change, okay? And I think the, 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 the approach we have right now, 4D ultrasounds, 
tremendous gift. That's why whenever I can, in the leading of one of my stories on Catholic Online, I always put a 4D ultrasound in there. We know what's going on. And you know, the fact is, even the most ardent anti-life folks very rarely make the arguments that used to be made 20 years ago, that the child in the womb is not a person. They don't do that anymore. It's come down now to this basic raw power idea, wantedness, that what makes you a human person is that you're no longer dependent. That's insane. We're all dependent. We're all in development. We're all works in progress. And we need to go toe-to-toe -to -toe on those kinds of arguments. It will take a long time, but it, we will prevail. That's why I put the history in there. We have prevailed over and over again, and we will prevail again. Uh, you know, I wrote an article just a few days ago on um, the Planned Parenthood report. We ought to take example. We, we ought to know when those reports come out and read them. Because when people see what happened in 2011 and 2010, how many hundreds of thousands of children were killed with tax dollars. Those are very effective positions. We need, yes, to develop the language, but also to develop a thick skin and to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and not back down. And we need more people who are willing to do that. You're right, we had some good ones. I wish one in particular hadn't pulled out. He lives up here. We'll have some good ones next time around, and maybe you can run. Deacon, before we, we finish for the evening, could you just give a, a sense of where we're going to go next week and the following week so yeah. that... And if You'll you notice what I'm not it. doing, and I don't know if this fits, Deacon, with what you wanted me to do. I'm not just getting into political positions. I'm trying to build the broader context of the culture and a vision of our role in it. So next week I want to talk about unity of life. What does it mean to live a unified life? Now, that's theological anthropology. People say, wait a minute, this is about Catholic politics. You came up with the term more than me. I don't think you can understand Catholic politics if you don't understand the nature of the human person, okay? And living a unity of life. I alluded to it tonight. Just like we can't separate body, soul, and spirit in the person, we can't separate moral issues from the body politic. There is a moral component to economic issues. The rift in the other major party between the so-called economic conservatives and social conservatives is ridiculous. They're connected. We're morally bankrupt and that's why we're economically bankrupt. So I want to talk about that kind of unity of life. This is a Catholic way of viewing things. And I, I think it's critically important as we continue in political participation that we don't allow ourselves to, are you a good witch or a bad witch? I'm not a witch at all. You know, are you an economic conservative or are you a social conservative? You know, first of all, I'm not a conservative, I'm a Catholic. But second of all, I'm not going to separate out all of those things. So I'm going to talk about unity of life and what that means, huh? That's the next talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you very much for coming this evening. We'll see you next Thursday, same time, same place. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.